0: The Protect Your Neck Podcast. Top five strike force fights with John Morgan. We had a fun time covering a crazy organization that checks all the boxes, so strap in. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak
1: tree. People sitting on porches thinking how things used to be. Dark night. It's a, dark night.
0: Dark night. It's a dark night. What is up, you savages? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Tom, analyst whose work you could find over at MMAJunkie.com. But on this year program, we break down high level MMA—I MMA, should say—as I stumble, but in a different way because. Well, we're kind of back to normal with the schedule, but with the schedule being fast for all organizations now, it's always good to kind of look back, appreciate where we are, and look back at the action that that perhaps took place from a different time. To help me with that, of course, I need a co-host. I'm surprised I haven't had this co-host with me. He's been kind enough to have me on his podcast, which is the MMA Roadshow. I suggest you check out, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Patreon, that, of course, is MMA Junkie John. What's up, John Morgan?
1: I'm just happy i finally made the cut man i've been building myself up you know to to, to be on your show and i understand man i've been scratching the claw on my way to the to the guest list and, and finally i'm here i've arrived and uh it's it's a special day for me man it's a special day
0: it's very funny how, uh, you know, hopefully people are picking up on the comedy here because, of course, I've known John for a while. Uh, we've crossed paths many a times before in this in this mixed martial arts scene, especially in the time period we're about to talk about, before we actually work together. But, uh, you know, it, it, of course, it's it's been an honor to be on your show, John, and, uh, you know, just as a listener. And I'm like, wow. I'm actually on John's podcast and now you fast forward from that even I'm like I still haven't had the guy on my podcast and I work with him I'm a I feel like a jerk over here so and you're you're a wealth of knowledge so I, I'm, I'm excited to have you on for this this topic in particular which we haven't uh set off the top if you haven't read the show notes top five strike force fights strike force John
1: it's awesome man I you know like you said looking back man I enjoy it too man I'm I'm a I'm a fight pass aficionado man I love going back and watching old tape I mean I my really fandom for MMA kind of started with the Pancras days even more so than than UFC, man. I mean, watching watching those old tapes from Japan, I just absolutely loved it. So, yeah, man, going back and, you know, seeing evolutions, I mean, from your perspective, I know, man, you, you know, you obviously are really into technique breakdown and tactical awareness and analysis and those sort of things. And I think going back and watching the lessons and seeing the development, it's fun. But even just knowing the history of the sport and seeing how it evolves, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's important. And Strikeforce was a great organization, man. It really was. Uh, you know started out as, as a regional thing I mean it was really just you know California based and then of course you know they ended up taking it around the nation and uh, it, it challenging man that's so, so hard to do what they do and, and man they did it with a skeleton crew dude they did not have the, the power of the, of the USC staff so um, put on some great shows. Uh, I, I did always like to joke you know I thought that you know had you as a, as a better or as an analyst just picked the blue corner every single time you know what i mean uh you, you, you probably you probably struggle there but uh it's it's i thought there were a lot of matchups and kind of you know squash matches so to speak where you could look at a card and go hey i know who's gonna win on this on this fight card you did but at the same time um it was fun man there were a lot of personalities a lot of names and we're gonna talk about them here for sure but uh a good organization man that, that uh ended up being i guess on the zufa tombstone under under the under their roster but uh it was a fun time, man.
0: And we're definitely going to talk about those notes uh, as we, you know, a lot of these, as as you guys know, in these top five shows, for example, uh, we had a lot of popularity with certain topics. Like, for example, we did a WEC show, John. Of course, we had another uh, a fellow friend, colleague, another member of your own MMA road show, if you will, Simon Head, uh, as well on. James Lynch uh, was on to help uh, do some Bellator fights. And a lot of times when we do these kind of historical retrospectives, um, I just want to kind of lay a little bit of primer before we dive into the list so John of course feel free to add on interrupt interject uh, as you will cuz you mentioned a lot of great notes there but essentially strike force starts in a really good year 1985 when this guy was born uh, and, and it's, you know, date of death is the tombstone, which I'm sure we'll touch on too, was 2013, right? Um, and in such time, I'm sure me and you, in different in all different sorts of ways, our, our martial arts fandom grew as we watched uh, this organization through different iterations. Obviously, we're more familiar with the MMA iteration. It started off as a kickboxing iteration. Of course, Scott Coker coming from traditional martial arts, perhaps as part and parcel with him being part Korean, but he was a Taekwondo guy, which I can respect. Of course as we saw in the late 80s and 90s folks from the pka kickboxing days even from the 70s we start seeing that crossover for traditional martial arts meet with kickboxing and muay thai and there's almost a mixed martial arts kind of scene happening within the stand-up realm and that's kind of what uh strike force and scott coker himself kind of comes from right um it, it gets purchased of course you know by zufa in 2011 but before that a lot of interesting things happened from you know the NBC contract in 2008 to them you know doing co- co-promotion, something that's talked about today. Again, Scott Coker was one of the, uh, I don't know if you want to say one of the first, but as far as on that level of MMA, he was definitely on the forefront. Pro elite Elite XC eventually buying out them in 2009, and of course, with those contracts, you got guys like you know the Diaz's uh, of the world who you know was fighting over an Elite XC. You got to see you know perhaps fights you know in uh, trilogies with his name. I don't want to burn anything that's going to be on our list, perhaps, John, but you start seeing trilogies and storylines carry over almost seamlessly, which is why if you go on Fight Pass, folks, you might notice both Elite XC. And strike force on the same mats for a lot of these fights in certain time periods. Um, of course, 2009 is kind of an interesting divider too as well, John. Because you've got things like people didn't realize elbows were always allowed standing up, but they weren't allowed on the ground. Um, those weren't integrated, I believe, until Zufa purchases it. But here's something that I came up with in my research. I think they're kind of wrong on this, John. Tell me what you think. I remember weight classes, especially in Japan, where Elite XC of, of lightweight being 160. But according to Wikipedia, Strike Force's weight classes prior to 2009 had bantamweight at 130 pounds, featherweight at 145, which is the same, lightweight at 160, welterweight at 175, middleweight at 190, light heavyweight is the same at 205 pounds, while heavyweight, it just simply says, unlimited. Does this sound familiar to you, John?
1: It's funny, man. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. I remember the Elite XC weight classes definitely stood out to me because it, it seemed such a market change. Um, but, you know, I, I guess maybe part of that is is maybe, and, and I don't mean to defame to Strikeforce anyway, but their world titles weren't necessarily, like, I don't want to say not respected, but it wasn't viewed as, like, a, a, a world championship, so to speak. So, um, it might have been. I mean, I do remember them certainly taking some, some liberties uh, with where they booked weight classes and that sort of thing, but I, I don't remember that. I'll have to go back and look at that. That's That's not standing out to me, but Jesus, man. I mean, time is flying, and I'm getting old, and this brain is getting not as sharp as it once was.
0: Well, I mean, hey, I'm cheating here. I got notes. I had to go look half this stuff up to remind myself, John. I'm not fronting. And perhaps that's, you know, I don't know if it's age for for me or more getting hit in the head, but neither here nor there. Strike Force did a lot of interesting things. They also had something called the Challenger shows. They put on about 20 of those, and the uh, the Challenger shows – you know, you, the worst part is when you can't read your own handwriting, but the more important part is the Challenger shows brought us names early as Misha Tate to later names like Ronda Rousey, who I remember being present for that Challenger show right here in Las Vegas where she fought Sarah Dalio. Deli- uh, you also had names like Ovin St. Pru, uh, or even uh, other names like, you know, uh, Ryan Couture trying to make his way up, which spawned other names like Matt Rice House. And you got from hardcore to more well-known, um, Challenger series was kind of a quiet, quiet piece for them.
1: It really was. And I want to say, I mean, it, I may be wrong here, but uh, Luke Rockhold, Daniel Cormier, yep. they both came through the Challenger Series as well, which kind of t- t- takes me back to something kind of funny uh, with them uh, and, and kind of talk about the, the, the shoestring budget that they were using. If you go through the Fight Pass archives, there's some early fights from some of those guys under the strike force banner that don't exist because they, they didn't have enough money to pay the crew to take the entire show. So there would be dark fights, basically, that they weren't even filming. So, you I mean, you got fights from, like, Luke Rockhold, Daniel Cormier that don't exist. You could, there's no tape on it because nobody was shooting it. Or there's a couple, I think, that, as you go through the archive, that, like, they had an overhead camera and they just turned on, like, that overhead camera and left it running. And that's all the footage that exists of it. So it's kind of funny when you talk about it. I mean, they they, they were doing the best they could, you know, trying to keep the budget tight. But uh, it was crazy. You'd, the camera crews would come, set up, and then they'd take a break and then like go have lunch or whatever while, while these fights are going on and so because of that some of that footage uh of some of these big stars just doesn't exist
0: i love that you mentioned that too john because to your point it's not it's not so much a uh, taking a shot on uh uh you know um strike force at all or their importance but you saw that a lot even fights where there was a main card per se and uh you know if if it, if it was on the prelims you would get like Fighters like Chris Cyborg that are like, you know, big names, but you get her versus, uh, I believe it was Yokohama her name was, one of the few southpaws she faced. And you get this like kind of overhead cam, like you said, and it's kind of dizzy because you'll actually, the camera, if you go to Fight Pass, it'll follow the cameraman, walk into his post, and then he'll jump (laughs) up on there, and he'll he'll uh, he'll start recording the fight. But once the fight's going, you almost get this, you don't get commentary, so it's weird but you get this really raw feel for the fight. You get to watch some really high-level fighters. In retrospect, you're like, how is this not getting covered? It just didn't make the coverage portion of the, of the broadcast, to your point, and uh, and there, there are some gems on there.
1: Unrelated to Strike Force, but this is, just cracks me up, but I'm, I'm going to put this out pretty soon. But there's a Victory FC event where uh, the, the only footage is, like, the master tape of one single cameraman shot. And so in between, like, as fighters are walking out, he's literally focusing on the breasts of women around the the cage and it's, and it's zooming in on their breasts and then zooming out. I'm like, this is the greatest footage I've ever seen. And like, thankfully I'm just doing deep dives and found that I'm like, this is absolutely hilarious. This dude just got busted. He with his camera in between fights. So to be clear, that was not strike force, but it's pretty damn funny. It's on fight pass.
0: It was a different. It was a different standard. It was a different time, right, John? It was a different standard in those days. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and speaking of of women, and and before we push on here, uh, there was things like the Playboy Mansion card. Uh, that was a fun dive. I got to like play Who's Who. I'm like, oh, I spy, I spy danced up. I spy Josh Gross. Um, that you know, like, I went back to watch that card. That was a trip. You remember that one,
1: John? Absolutely. Yeah, I got to go to the second one. I believe, if I remember right, I think Dan. Danced up, uh, of course, the starter, the man that originated MMA Junkie. Uh, he went to both of them, if I remember right. But uh, yeah, got to go to the Playboy Mansion and, and do a card there. I mean, that was a that was a wild one to say the least, man. That, not not something that I thought I'd be able to scratch off the bucket list, but uh, pretty cool that they did that.
0: Definitely, they did a lot of cool things from the from you know pageantry, you know, from maybe the more Asian influence to co promotion, um, more of the business forefront, um, you know, uh, different types of star building. Uh, women, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, like all these different check Strike Strikeforce really checked them all you know you still you still had a very north american uh american friendly product from you know the sponsorship kind of NASCAR era of our sport you still had that like Strikeforce really did check out all the boxes: tournaments, grand Prix I mean kind of there, there kind of isn't anything that organization didn't do before we push on huh, on.
1: No, Scott Coker, listen, I think sometimes probably people don't realize how deep his roots go. You know, he's not just a, a businessman, as you kind of alluded to. He's not just like a guy that, that saw an opportunity and, and wanted to jump in the business. I mean, martial arts is really in his blood, and it goes back to the to the early days of, of you know, K-1. And, and, you know, obviously he's, uh, you know, it got ties to the Japanese community and the Japanese scene, and, and he's taken nods from them, you know. So he's always been willing to, to do some different things, you know. I think the only, I mean, the only criticisms I've ever really heard of of, of Scott uh, as the promoter that you know was well, sometimes they overpaid talent and that may have led to their demise, but they really had no choice. I mean, if they wanted to get big names away from the USc they had to pay premium rates, and so that made it difficult for them sometimes, I think, financially. But you know, as far as you you talk to people that deal with Scott Coker, man, you'll you'll never meet uh, a more professional guy, a better dude. I mean, i I've, I've yet to find somebody that has something bad to say about having a a business relationship with scott coker and he understands the sport you know what i mean and, and you know the other thing i think scott was always really good about too was not um not trying to battle with the ufc you know he wasn't one of those promoters that said you know we're coming after them we're going to be the world's biggest promoter. we're going to do this you know and and obviously that's hard man to to, to go after the UFC. it doesn't mean it's, it's never worked for anybody you know what i mean and uh, once you're on the UFC's radar if anything they want to crush you at that point so i thought he, he was always really good about just saying hey you know he when you would bring it up, he would kind of deflect it. Now, nah, you know, we're not worried about them. We've got to worry about our roster and what we're doing and all those things. And uh, I thought he was always really good about that. So yeah, Scott Scott did a lot of great things and, and instituted a lot of great uh, you know policies and and, and and tried out new things. He's a he's a he's a great fight promoter and, and, a, and a great guy, man.
0: I agree. Well said. And uh, I'll add you back here. Getting a little bit of visual, but the audio's coming through fine. Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and keep pushing through here uh but Ooh. but but no uh and everything good on your end, John?
1: yeah, it looks okay, sounds okay on my end, so sorry if it's i I think something my my fi has been acting a little screwy today, man, I mean, I have like the fucking giga blast from Cox or whatever, but I think it's been kind of uh a little off today, but uh, so I apologize for that,
0: Sam here, it's all good it, it uh we'll we'll see how it records, maybe this is just on my end because all my other screens are fine, and this isn't a professional show, so I don't mind. Saying this and can edit it out, which I probably won't, but on those notes about Scott Coker <laughs> that was really really uh, really well said and um and yeah, and a lot of the things that you know you could even you know uh, people w- would criticize as far as his methodology on, on tagging something you know kind of juicy headline worthy uh, you know w- uh, you know bringing back older names if you will, but then also having real talent um you know, showcase underneath it really cleverly, like, and that's something that he didn't just do in Bellator, folks. I mean, going back as we kick into our top five here, Force's first show, at least MMA event, is Shamrock versus Gracie. Now, it's not the Shamrock versus Gracie you might expect. Uh, it might not be the Gracie you might expect to pick up the torch for the rivalry. No disrespect to Caesar, but. It really was a, a, a tribute to not just the business model that Coker, which would be successful, he would use for Strikeforce, Bell Tour, and so on, but really it just housed, which we're going to talk about here, folks. We are going to get to it. That whole NorCal scene. I mean, that NorCal scene, people that don't know for mixed martial arts, it was a melting pot. You got not just Caesar Gracie, but you got the aggressive Half Gracie, who, you know, uh you know was alive and thriving then helped bringing up guys like dave camarillo who of course would attribute to aka or bj penn who people don't know fought for aka and trained under the gracies he had a lot of norcal roots there as well and then you see the scrap pack form right nick nate diaz uh aka has so many branches and, and lineages to it and uh we'll talk about it all here but that but that's kind of what strike force was to me uh, at the heart of it was a lot of that norcal scene man
1: no question i mean they own the market i mean that's that's their that's their home market that's where scott lives right and i mean again as we started it started out as just kind of a local promotion they were doing shows there but they were the first one to do pro mma in california and uh as you said man they had a, a, an amazing event there and, and uh some amazing names and, and yeah you know it, it's funny how you know strike force probably really benefited from the the glut of talent that was in that norcal area you know a chance to fight for a a respected promoter and do it in your backyard i mean it it shuffled a lot of talent straight to them for sure um that aka pipeline was was strong just in itself so uh yeah man they they, uh, they dominated that market it really just goes to show you how much how much talent was coming out of there at that time
0: absolutely absolutely all right on that note let's get to our top five shall we
1: all right, and on that note of being the
0: top five, um, I usually offer the guests to kind of go first, starting from five to one. Of course, we will pass the ball. Uh, John, you comfortable with your number five? You want to you wanna start this party and let me know what ended up uh, making the cut here at the top of the list?
1: All right, let's do it. Number five for me is going to be uh, something you kind of touched on earlier, that, that, that co-promotion angle, man. Frank Shamrock versus Phil Baroni, uh, 2007. It was the combination of force and Elite XC. And uh, I love the fight. You know, to me, in, in thinking back right away, this one stuck out to me. And the fight itself is fantastic because you got two real characters. You know I mean? Frank Shamrock, obviously, you know, a former USC champion, should be in the USC Hall of Fame, but he's not. Uh, but always an outspoken guy, certainly uh, doesn't mind carrying himself with a little air of confidence, maybe maybe even a touch of, of cockiness, we'll say. Uh, and then you got Phil Baroni, I mean, the New York badass. I mean, come on, dude, what a showman he is and, and how, how many fun fights has he had. And their fight was fantastic. I mean, it was back and forth. Uh, You know, Frank uh, tells him at one point, you know, gives him a little like you're going to sleep thing, puts his hands up to his head, and then drops him right after. Uh, Phil Baroni, probably not going to shock you. He ends up gassing out a little bit. Uh, The the, the gas tank was always a little bit of an issue with Phil Baroni, and so Frank ends up getting the win. But it's an an entertaining fight, Uh, and it was back and forth in the beginning. I mean, Phil had some moments. That part was great. But I think to me – it just – that that card stood out to me. If you go back and watch that card, every fight on the main card was a finish. It was very entertaining. You had some great names on there. I mean uh, Ninja Who was on there, old school Joey Villasenor, Kung Lee on there against Tony Franklin, Paul Buntello against Carter Williams, Josh Thompson, Nick Gonzalez, Paul Daly, Bang Ludwig. Yep. I mean you're talking about some names. So The card was fun. And to me, you know, you touched on it, the, the, the promotion, man, and the co-promotion. I mean that to me was something – that even to this day, I'll be honest with you, man, I wish we would see more of outside of the UFC. I get why the UFC is not ever, ever, ever going to do it. I totally understand why. But for everybody else, man, I just feel like it would add so much when you're not worried about just your roster. You're able to access you know, the roster of other organizations as well. And I know it's, it's tough to do, man. It's not easy because there's so many you know, question marks, well, you know, what what network does it air on? Who gets the rights fees? What you know, who's on the canvas, there's so many questions. So well, it's not easy. It's not as easy as I think some people might think. We're like, yeah, they should just co promote. Uh, it's there's a lot more to it than that. But they figured out a way to do it and I was like, man, this is awesome. And uh, and Frank Shanrock versus Phil Baroni, man, that kinda captured that that moment for me and uh, and it was a fun fight. So there's my five Shanrock versus Baroni.
0: Yeah, that was a great one, and like you said, it was in that co-promotion era where we thought it was probably going to be, you know, the next fight straight away because, you know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, their first one, Gracie versus Shamrock to open things up. Well, it was Phil Baroni in the commentary booth. Uh, by the way, you had like Forrest Whitaker and Chuck Norris at that first show. Not not bad for uh, uh, Scott Coker doing some celebrity pulling, but you had Phil Baroni in the commentary booth, and he kind of revealed, he's like, I don't know how I should act here because I'm, I'm probably set to fight the winner. Kind of setting the table for this fight, yeah. and uh, giving a shout to our colleagues, George and Goes. You know they interviewed uh, Baroni's side on this fight, and and John, you know you've been cage side for how many? Certain fights fighters aren't the same after; they change them. And this is one that Phil Baroni himself readily admitted that he wasn't the same after. And even though Phil Baroni had that style and his style like you said was was shown in this fight and perhaps that wasn't a surprise but you can also see especially with the the beating that he had to take after being dropped like you said after Frank faked him out um you see like yeah Baroni wasn't kidding you could see how that fight could change a man
1: no question about it it was it was a vicious finish but uh man just a a great moment in history for me
0: great number 5 um mine is going to come about you know about 4 years later that one was in 2007 of course uh, I mentioned women's MMA and Scott Coker. You know, I, I, I want—I want to say he doesn't get enough credit, but I think he does for anybody that knows their history. Uh, He—he was—he he was the guy to really uh, first invest on the uh, you know women's MMA in the forefront. And one of my favorite female fighters that doesn't get talked about a lot was Marluce Coon, and John. Uh, and she was uh, the bantamweight champion. She, fought, of course, fought at featherweight, maybe. Perhaps other fans maybe were tuning in at the tail end of her career when they were trying to get someone to fight Cyborg, right? And but they needed someone to fill those cyborg and Corano shoes. Uh, not to not to step on that. And Marlo's Kunin, in my opinion, did a really good job at representing herself and she owns kind of the female version of Anderson Silva versus Sun Sonnen one, which is my selection here. Marlus Coonan versus Liz Carmouche, who would go on to show that she would either be a historical setting spoiler or a historical setting close to spoiler throughout her career. This was our first taste of Carmouche, who was a huge underdog. I think she took this fight on somewhat short notice. This wasn't, you know, I think they wanted Misha, but Misha was injured and Misha would fight for the title after this. But, yes, it was similar to Sun versus Anderson Silva, and you essentially have you know- Liz Carmouche taking it too getting a full mount like banking ten eights on Liz on a on uh a Coonan and I'm watching back this fight recently, John, and I'm like male or female, both like I can't see fights being allowed to go this long and mount um regardless of the damage, and they're letting this one play out, and thankfully they did because of course she gets not around five around four. But still a dramatic finish nonetheless. A triangle off, a desperate takedown in the championship rounds. And uh, endears herself to the Ohio audience who, you know, uh, you know, nothing wrong with Ohio. They got some of the best MMA audience as far as loudness. But this is definitely a USA, USA era. And she won the crowd over and it was really great to see. Makes my number five.
1: That's a great call, man. Marlis Koonin, I think you're right, underappreciated. I think if you weren't following, you know, women's MMA during the early years of development or you weren't paying attention to Strike Force. I mean, she fought a, a lot of big names. And, by the way, Carmouche, I, mean, I mean, fights nothing but killers in her whole career. Um, but, yeah, Marla's Kunin is fantastic. Uh, still around the game. She does uh, the Dutch broadcasting, I believe, for, for Bellator. So you see her kind of coming in and out of events. So it's always great to see her. Uh, she's a class act, man. She's a, a great fighter. Phenomenal individual as well and, and carries herself with a ton of classes. She had a great career.
0: Yeah. Uh, some things don't, you know, it, 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 I don't want to say age well, but perhaps, you know, your number one gets knocked off at a certain point of time. But, no, she's she's probably still my favorite uh, female fighter if uh, there's a gun in my head and you got to, to, to make me pick one.
1: No question about it. She's right up there. She's one of the best pound for pound of all time, and she, she really does deserve some love. So uh, good shot there. Good shout on that one.
0: All right. Let's climb this ladder, John. What did you get for number four?
1: All right number four robbie lawler versus melvin manhoff january 2010 i mean come on dude i mean oh, man again again this is kind of this uh crossover type fight yes. right you know robbie lawler's got the history in the ufc melvin manhoff's been fighting over in japan and europe that sort of thing so it's almost like a fantasy fight right and stylistically i mean if you watch these guys fight i mean they can bang obviously lawler Certainly, anybody listening to this would uh, knows his history. Manhoff, I would imagine you do as well. But just if you didn't, an absolute marauder, man. I mean, this dude is an angry little man, just coming to knock you out as as quick as he can. And uh, but in this fight, Melvin Manhoff. So on, on paper, you know it's going to be fireworks, but you didn't know exactly how. And Melvin Manhoff, uh, again, somebody that has had a, an issue with a gas tank over the course of his career. You know, he did come in so guns blazing every single fight that if you could survive that initial barrage. It was kind of like facing uh, Tyson on, on Tyson's punch out or whatever, right? Like, you got yeah. to <laughs> get through that first minute 30, bro, and it ain't going to happen. So it was like that. But uh, Melvin actually in this one came out attacking the legs. And I mean some of the nastiest leg kicks you've ever seen. Like, like Jose Aldo would look at it and be like, whoo, I don't want to see those, man. Those are nasty, you know. And just tearing the leg apart. Lawler is, is visibly, visibly limping. And. Melvin's pacing himself, he's, he's doing the right things, he's not he's not going for the kill, he's letting the, the, the finish come to him, and then all of a sudden, one right hand, boom, and he's out cold, man, I mean, out cold on the deck, Robbie's, you know, going to celebrate, but he can barely even walk to celebrate, I mean, just unbelievable comeback, I mean, you're, you're, you're literally sitting there going, I cannot believe how bad Robbie Lawler is losing right now, just being precision taken apart by this killer and then one shot ends it all. So, my number 4, Robbie Lawler versus Melvin Manho.
0: That's a great shout there. That's a that's a fantastic shout. Was that the was that the classic uh, Robbie Lawler falling asleep at the press conference John was it that one or
1: Bro, that Robbie Lawler was cra- Robbie Lawler has had some stages in his career. I I, I listen, I can honestly tell you <laughs> I remember a time in in the career where I had like Strike Force PR going, "Hey, uh, Robbie Lawler's available right now. Would you like to talk to him?" And I'm like Nah, I'm good, man. Like, he he just did not want to do media at all. Like, literally. And and I could never, I mean, you could always tell that he wasn't really interested in doing media. Like you said, falling asleep at press conferences, which was just absolutely amazing. But I don't think he necessarily was, like, rude. He, he would just, if you asked him a yes or no question, you damn sure were going to get a yes or no answer. And there would be no elaboration whatsoever. So, it kind of forced you as a journalist to to, uh, you know, to to, to to think things through a little bit more and, and to be sure and, uh, you know, ask. In fact, is that the, yes, the, the Adlin Amagov fight. It's, I'll share another little Strikeforce story. So, uh, Robbie Lawler, I, I will credit him for having uh, one of the greatest headlines in the history of MMA Junkie um, because, you know, I was trying to get him to talk a little bit. I think it was the Amagov fight. I, I know it was the Strikeforce for
0: Apologize for that interruption, but John, you were queuing up an Adelon Amagov story in relation to uh, your your number four that we're talking about, which of course was uh, Robbie Lawler's uh, unforgettable fight there with Melvin Manhoff. Uh, t- tell us where you were going with that in relation to.
1: Yeah, yeah, no worries. So so Lawler's getting ready for this fight. We're interviewing him ahead of time, and uh, he had been fighting a bunch of grapplers up to that point, so now he's facing Stryker. I says, is this the perfect opponent for you? And he says, no. And I'm like well, what would be the perfect opponent? And he said, somebody with no arms and no legs. And Adam Hill chimed in, how would you beat him? And without skipping a beat, Robbie Lawler just said, ground and pound. Like, all right. So it was an interesting little exchange. So the headline I ended up going with for MMA Junkie was, with limbless opponent unavailable, Robbie Lawler settles for Adlin (laughs) Amagoff.
0: Dude, that's got to be, if we're doing top five MMA headlines, how is that not... Up in the mix. I mean, that's great.
1: Come on, that's great. I mean, yeah, that's that's how we took a nothing interview and made something kind of fun out of it.
0: Take note, uh, both fighters and media on that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, Robbie Robbie was uh, Robbie was at a special time. He's much better now, and I think he's finally embraced it and kind of changed it a little bit. But that was an interesting era where he didn't like talking much. Not 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 that he's a real chatterbox now, but but anyway. That fight, Robbie Lawler versus Melvin Manhoef, amazing. That's my number four. That
0: was a great one, and just just to add into that, I just I, I remember because it was an open stance matchup. So you're like, okay, are the leg kicks going to be there as much on the southpaw Robbie Lawler? No, didn't didn't matter. And you just see Robbie's like lead leg, you know, flinging up in the air every time he kicked it, and you're just like, ooh, you were just you know you 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 were feeling the sways of the boat, if you will, even though we're just watching, thankfully, from the comfort uh, of our homes. But yeah, that's an unforgettable one, a good number four. And it uh, it leads to my number four here. Um, this is a classic. There's a lot of uh, series uh, rematches, perhaps even uh, a trilogy, which I'm going to touch on here. We could we could pick, you know, a couple from that trilogy. But for me, seldom is the second better than the first. But uh, for me, the second is better than the first and third, and that's Gilbert Melendez versus Josh Thompson two, back in 2009, uh, December 19th. I really love this fight. Um, it's, it's, it, 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 it's up there on other lists of mine. And, and for good reason, it's, it's a fun fight from start to finish, particularly round two, because for people that don't know, the first fight goes to Josh Thompson. I believe he actually, even like all three judges give all three rounds to Josh Thompson. Like it's not a a controversial decision by any means. Um, not like the third fight where you can make arguments, uh, per se, however, Once we're getting into the first and second round, you really start to see Gilbert Melendez turn the tide. And it's great because I always picture El Nino hitting body shots on that epic Diego Sanchez fight that's burned into our brain. But El Nino, Gilbert Melendez, his boxing was still in a developing era. And it was Josh Thompson that was the one that was going to the body with great affect in this fight but would get clipped, of course, you know, with Gilbert Melendez's brawling sensibilities, and it was a great fight, and by the end of it, you know, I think it's like 48-47 or 49-46, no question for Gilbert Melendez, but just two great fighters, a great trilogy, and John, I don't think he gets talked about it much when you're talking about fighters with chins or a or durable, but, like, is Gilbert Melendez one of the most durable fighters in MMA? Like, looking what we've seen with him take from body shots, leg kicks from Barbosa to Stevens, to all the head shots...
1: Well, first, let me just say you threw me for a loop because when you mentioned legendary trilogies strike force, I, of course, thought you were going with Bobby Volker versus Roger Bowling, the, the trilogy that we, we just have up there in the echelons. Of, of great, the shout, great shout. Great <laughs> shout. But, no, listen, uh, you're right, man. I, I, I feel for anybody that didn't get a chance to watch this era Gilbert Melendez. You know, if you weren't paying attention to Strike Force then you didn't get the full uh, breadth of his talent and his skills when he came to the UFC. Obviously, that run... You know, didn't necessarily go as expected. Gave us, you know, some great moments, of course. But you didn't get to see when, you know, there was a, a conversation that Gilbert Melendez was was the top lightweight in the world. So, uh, and then of course Josh Thompson as well. I mean, this 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 as you said, the whole trilogy was fantastic. I mean, if you're writing a history of strike Strikeforce, um, you, you can't not mention this trilogy. I mean, these two, these two these two amazing fighters, you know, were were, were backbones and, and poster guys of the company, and, and they and they you know came together for some fantastic fights.
0: No doubt, no doubt, yeah, and and again, you know, you could you could split hairs as far as the second or the third, but, you know, and you, you hear it in the commentary too, you know, they're asking for it by the, the fourth round, and by the fifth round, it's all but a guarantee, they're promising you another great fight, which is really dangerous to do in MMA, but if you are going to do it, the lightweight division, much less these two, is a pretty good place to throw your dart, so that's my dart for number four. Um, I'm surprised there's no crossover yet, you know. But it, then again, I shouldn't because there there really is a lot of great fights. I mean, I I can't belabor that point enough,
1: right? No doubt about it. And, and and listen, that kind of brings me into my number three, which I I would preface it by saying this because you know when you talk about top fives, you know, as as you said, you know, it's not always just the uh, the, the best fight, so to speak. I mean, I think that's a little bit different, right? If we're just ranking like the five greatest fights sure. or whatever. I mean, this is we get to have a little fun with it. So for me, number three. Is uh, is going to be Ferreiro over Doom versus Fedor Melianenko. Uh, not necessarily the greatest fight of all time, but historical, man. That moment I will never forget. I mean, the you know of course, man. I, I, I was I never got to make it to Japan for a Pride fight. I did I did make it to Japan for a UFC, but I never got to see you know Pride in its heyday in person. And so you know the opportunity once Fedor Melianenko came to the United States and to watch some of his fights, I mean. A aura about him even to this day. I mean even though now we're you obviously in the tail tail stages of his career There's still an aura about Fedor Mellico yeah. when, he, when he steps into the into the ring or when he's in a room, man There's just this the, the way he carries himself is incredible um, So to, to be a part of that was amazing and then to see the epic win streak, you know snap by, by Fabrizio Doom Was incredible and so it was it was amazing to be there. I was in person for that it was amazing to be there but the thing that will always stand out to me about this was not necessarily just the fight itself, because there was an incredible reaction where everybody's just like, "Oh my God, Fedor just lost!" But it was afterwards in the post-fight press conference, and Fedor Milanico is 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 up at the table at the dais in the press room in in uh, the the Shark Tank, which are the SAP Center now, uh, where this fight was. Um, it's just kind of a little room in the back, and it's it's off the main hallway um, where the locker rooms and all that stuff are. But um, Fedor's up there. He's 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 starting to talk, and obviously everything's you know very stoic, and everybody's kind of shell shocked a little bit. And in the back, you can hear Fabricio Verdoom out in the hallway and his team celebrating. You know, hey, oh boy, hey! You know, it's just like man, here's Fedor like having to like answer these questions about what happened and what went wrong, and, and, and reflecting on all his time of without losing. And in the and in the outside, you know, you can hear just the the party and the celebration going on with Verduum and that crew. So, um, yeah, just a, a fight memory, man, that I'll that I'll never forget. So that's why, for me, like I said, maybe maybe it's not on your list of greatest fights of all time, but for me, you know, historical moments and in, in big time in uh, in force, give me give me Verduum versus Fedor.
0: I love that the the uh, that little tidbit there with the SAP Center in the media room because even just watching. Uh, the footage back, you can you could pick up on that, and, and knowing Verdum, it was probably a soccer chant or something. They're probably going ole 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 ole, of Verdum, of Verdum, <laughs> over
1: the top, just scream. Oh man, I was like, man, poor Fedor, he's got to sit here and listen to all this. And that, and that image gives, uh, gave me
0: gives me a UFC, I think ninety four flashback of a. Uh, B.J. Penn just beating the crap out of like looking at George St. Pierre like did I did that just happen and then GSP and his team doing the soccer chant and doing the celebration in the in the ring you just that 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 juxtaposition is really powerful right um, to see in, in our sport and that's a great pick and, and again another another shout to MMA Junkie Radio and our uh, our colleagues there at George and goes I remember. That show everybody calling in the next day. It was like a bizarre world. So, if, if their callers had a certain personality, they would have the opposite personality. And it was like, it, it was, it sounds silly, folks, but it was just something that permeated the scene. I mean, even the realists, so to speak, right? John, we sound, we, Aura sounds funny, and but even the realists amongst us that were predicting Fedor's end to come soon after seeing him narrowly escaping names like Brett Rogers, I still don't even think those people were banking on Verdoom to pull it off. Uh, which which says to how shocking it was.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we thought that he had some talents that he could be a little bit of a threat But not and not like that. I mean just not getting it done so quickly and and, and the way he did it just very very impressive Uh, Man, it just the, the, the tide changed in a second, you know, it was it was it was wild But just goes to show you by the way the grappling skills of Fabrizio Verdun, man The, the guy, uh, you know, obviously he's known most for his MMA talents, but his, his jiu-jitsu really is off the charts.
0: And that was part of the run where he went to show it. And, uh, you know, even though he lost a lot of crucial fights, uh, if, we're, if, we're, if we're playing that game, he still uh, cemented his spot in the history books with, with that one for sure, regardless. So, great number three. My number three, I'm i I'm going back to the ladies here. You know, I got to give the ladies some love. And this one was an important one in history. Um, this, this happened in 2012. And this was Misha Tate versus Julie Kenzie. Uh, this was a really, it was, it was a fun fight for as long as it lasted. It we went three rounds, so it lasted pretty long, but there was a finish. It was back and forth. Um, you know, Julie Kedzie, who I believe has a Taekwondo background, obviously the more powerful striker. You got two, you know, athletic, uh, good looking, smart, intelligent, checking literally all the boxes as far as what, what you want to, to, to represent the sport at the, that, that time, which comes in handy because one Dana White, who folks at this time, he was not sold, Um, in fact, you know, Misha Tate was coming off of her loss to Ronda Rousey, which was a brutal finish that hurt her arm. So we were curious to see what kind of condition she would come in. Uh, obviously, Rousey was making, you know, noise at that point. I say that for context. And Dana White, lo and behold, was tuning in as I don't have the tweet in front of me because I'm a poor podcast host. But he does, you know, release a legendary tweet as far as saying, now that is is an an effing fight or something along those lines, giving credit, which was the first time, if you follow Dana White, that he was really even giving credit to the ladies. And this is a fight that's not talked about. We, We know about Rousey. We know about her effect and her connection with Dana. But this is kind of the quiet flint lighter and just a really fun fight to revisit that's not talked about enough. Uh, in my opinion, of course, hardcores know all about this one. So I just want to give that one a shout, and you should really go back and watch Misha Tate versus Julie Kedzie. It's
1: a great fight. It's a great shout, like you said, kind of unearthing some of the fights that people may have skipped, and that was a really good one. And as you said, came at a really kind of a critical time in Misha Tate's career, but also a critical time in in what would eventually be uh, you know, the, the women's divisions in the UFC. And just crazy to think, man, what a short period of time we went from you know, no women in the UFC in the infamous Dana line that they'll never be in to now, I mean, they're among the most popular fighters in the sport and we've got four divisions in, in the UFC. So um yeah, it was it was a very, very crucial time to say the least.
0: And yeah, I mean and, and again, you know, that that back to Scott Coker and Rich Shue as well for the matchmaking because uh You know, kind of back to your number three as well, as much as you could, you know, criticize and and call a lot of it smash making with the way the odds were, right, as far as how the odds, betting odds reflected a lot of these matches, um, there were still plenty of fun, competitive, and meaningful fights like Tate or Kenzie, and which you talked about one, and there's plenty of others perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll mention before we get out of here, John. But it also set up some of the biggest falls and greatest upsets in our sport, barring any era or division or organization happen under the strike force banner. So you gotta make sure you mention, you know, uh, mention those with the with the criticisms for, for the matchmaking, because you just really got a chaos of all the check boxes.
1: Yeah, you really did. They, they they had some fun with it at times, and I, look, they did a great job of, of developing talent and. Uh, it, the women's divisions especially was, uh, was intriguing. And that's, I'd say it, it, it takes me on number two because you kind of touched on it there, but, um, I wanted to shy away from this. Um, but I just couldn't, man. Ronda Rousey versus Misha Tate, March 2012. That's my number two. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's an obvious pick, like so obvious that I almost thought, wow ah, come on, man. Am I just mailing it in here? But no, you know what, man? I mean, the, the, fight is such a good fight. You know, we really see, um, we see the character of Misha Tate. But we also see the tenacity of Ronda Rousey as well. And I know it's easy to rewrite history and go back and say, ah, she was never that good and I was never a fan and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the way she handled the end of her career understandably deserves criticism. And, and I don't think anybody, uh, you know, wishes it would have ended the way it did and the way she handled things. But this was the beginning of, of, of Ronda Rousey. Now, you know, obviously here in Las Vegas, uh, you know, I, I had been fortunate enough to, to call some of her amateur fights. So I saw this coming. I said, oh, my gosh, the. The, the talent that this woman possesses is on a different level. She's about to take uh, the women's game by storm because at the time, listen, the women's divisions weren't as deep. I mean, it's just fair to say women didn't have opportunities to fight professionally. So why would they do it? You know what I mean? So uh, it, Rhonda was on a different level athletically and in this fight, we saw her get tested. We saw, you know, she had been tearing through opposition, but we saw her get tested by Misha Tate, but she, you know, she was tested and she got through it. You know, she she got out of some bad positions herself ends up with the uh, the famous head and arm throw that, that, that is so popular in the women's game overall uh, moves to mount and then uh, sets up the arm bar beautifully breaks the grip uh, to get the finish as you said you know Misha did not want to tap uh, the arm extended there and it looked rough so I mean I thought it was a great fight all the way around um, but also you know this was that fight that was starting to get um, the, the UFC push you know what I mean even though it was in strike force this is Zufa era strike force so um, you know the, the, I remember clearly you know, uh, Ronda and Misha both doing like press conferences um, that hadn't been done before, you know, and then bringing them on the media rounds and, you know, you know, weeks out and that sort of thing. So this was the first time they really both started getting that push from the UFC PR team um, as as a strike force fight. So it was cool to see. And you could see the, you know, the women's game really starting to get some attention. And uh, man, to me, this fight was just a a pivotal fight, an iconic moment. Um, So even though it's maybe an, an easy choice, um, I I just had to put it in there at number two.
0: No, that's a great choice. I mean, uh, March third, twenty twelve. So this fits under the zufa banner. So yeah, that tie-in. You're right. I I I totally uh, missed that. Um, perhaps because you're right, the, the the reach and the the machine, the PR machine. You know, uh, that was powerful back then as it is now. And to have that behind and and we see it kind of you know coming together and congealing. It really was a special time. That's a great selection um of course they have a great rematch which makes my top five female fights but as far as this fight i remember it was really tough for me too john because i became a fan of misha tate she was on the mma junkie radio shows like we mentioned however you know just like you had your own connection you called ronda rousey's fights by this point of course we're referring to her amateur career and tough enough and ronda rousey coming through the highest and gym and under gene labelle uh shared a uh, grappling lineage with myself and Neil uh, Melanson of the team I was operating under on that time. So it was kind of hard because I was, I was a Misha Tate fan and my heart was with Misha. But part of me was like, should I be rooting for this surrounded girl? Because she's my lineage. i got to be rooting for her to do well. And you just see her brutalize Misha's arm. It was so hard to watch because... You're happy for Ronda at one part. You got to watch her in tough enough. Or in your case, John call her fights. But then you're you're watching just you know Misha and her journey. Her arm just get mangled from this girl who came out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, no. Listen, I think if you go back and watch that fight, you will really see, like I said, the, the the character of both women. I mean, it was uh, it, it was more of a test. I mean, Ronda Rousey at that point, I mean, had been beating people in seconds. You know, and this was a first round finish, but it was very late in the first round. Um, and again, you know, Misha came out aggressive you know pressed forward um you know didn't have the greatest striking so didn't really threaten her there but got in tight uh, initiated some grappling exchanges and and of course we know how how ronda was so proficient uh, in the clinch man that was a bad spot to be with her Uh, but man when you see the 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 high level reversals and and some of the the you know transitions from both ladies uh it's impressive and like i said i mean ronda you know it's easy to be a front-runner it's easy to be a front-runner but she was tested and pushed in a little bit and I think that's one of the reasons you know this rivalry was so fun you know they, they had competitive fights even though you know they went Rhonda's direction they were still competitive and in the, the way their styles matched up was fun and of course like you said the way their personalities matched up I mean find me a person on earth with a bad thing to say about Misha Tate you know what I mean it's not gonna happen meanwhile Rhonda you know different personality brash bold not afraid to say what she's gonna do to you not afraid to to, to, to put a target on her back and let's be clear I mean Rhonda um you know what what it what it meant you know to market herself a little bit And i think she got that you know she grew up a pro wrestling fan she understood what it meant to be a character i mean i can tell you you know behind the scenes ronda now at the end of course you know ronda kind of shut everybody out but up until that point i mean i can tell you ronda was still very pleasant behind the scenes and hey john how you doing good to see you. i remember um seeing her at a tough enough event uh where she was there i i, I want to say i don't remember if it was a jessamine fight or a marina fight they both came through Tough yeah enough. sure it um, sounds familiar yeah so the fourth but ronda was there and she came up and gave me a big hug and just you know how you doing and and all those things so she was uh she, you know she understood how to put it on for the cameras um but uh but this was good man i mean again and this really started to launch you know the, the women into the ufc and 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 the, the superstar that ronda would become uh i mean again easy to rewrite history now and say that yeah, uh, you know she wasn't that good but i'm telling you influential i mean superstar like she's not look she's up there with conor mcgregor and brock lesnar you know i mean is the biggest stars we've seen in in the sport the numbers supported it and and she was transformative too you know i'll never forget in her UFC career it was before the alexis davis fight uh they did an open workout at at fashion show mall and uh (laughs) and there were like little girls that were there that were like Crying and shaking, I've always said it was like it was like the Beatles, like the old film of the Beatles. We're like ah, I mean they were like that just to, to see Ronda. I mean even the carmouche fight. I remember an open workout at a UFC gym in in, in SoCal and, and seeing like soccer moms and their daughters at an open workout for like the first time ever. You know what I mean? That never happened. So man, she just impacted a different audience. And uh, I know it's easy to hate on Ronda Rousey, but man, her her impact to the sport as a whole um, can't be denied. Man, it opened the door for you know all these women to compete. And, and uh, you know, most of the women on the roster today will still say that, like, hey, we owe Ronda a, a great favor, man. She got us into this. I mean, they still have reverence for her, um, even if they don't necessarily like the way she handled the end of her career. So uh, this was a big moment. Like I said, yeah. I, I thought it was kind of a, a, an easy one. I was like, ah, maybe I'm not bringing my A game uh, to this list. You know, Dan Tom's never going to have me on again. It took me so long to get here the first time. <laughs> never gonna have me again uh but i just I, I i just thought it was too big to leave off
0: no you're right it, it, it's it's a super important one and i it it, it curtailed beautifully with the with the Tate versus Kenzie one as far as that goes so uh that's great there and i think the common thread with those fights you mentioned spotlight right and i don't think anybody can deny that that ronda brought it into the spotlight and that was really well said on that john but I feel like when I go back and watch these fights, it's like these girls knew that. Because at the time, Strike Force was the biggest stage and was the biggest spotlight for those fighters. Now, the the, the male fighters, you could still make that argument, which we we, we proved was, was unfair, as we saw how well the strike force male fighters did. However, there was that stigma they faced, like WEC fighters face. What? What? Is it UFC? Is it UFC? I mean, the females, they weren't supposed to be doing it in the first place, according to society, right? Um, and they knew this was the biggest spotlight they had and I loved it because it's almost like they knew that and they brought everything to the table. Like they were just giving it all and making great accounts um, for women's MMA. So props props to them and props to the choices there. All right. Uh, what's up, John? You want to add, add something? No,
1: I was going to say, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you make a great comparison there. You're dead right about the WC, man. It was like this was the top level, you know, so they carried themselves with a little bit of extra responsibility on their shoulders. And, and I think they, they knew that. So, uh, you know, they knew they, they were representing the very best in the world at that time. The, the WC comparison is perfect. Yep, yep,
0: definitely. And um, my number two is going to kind of go back to the NorCal contingent. And it's like, it's, it's funny. It's almost like, uh, and they did it organically. A lot of these were head-to-head matchups from, you know, um, Frank Shamrock, to Kung Lee, to Frank Shamrock, to Nick Diaz, like these different NorCal sects they were able to kind of hang their head on to who was the guy that's going to own the, the the HP pavilion, the Shark Tank pavilion. We're going to build those San Jose shows around, even after they started expanding to other places, like we mentioned, like Ohio. And I mentioned Kung Lee. He was definitely one of those guys, and people forget. And I don't know if it was because of Kung Lee. I know he had some experience on like MTV and reality shows for his Sonda fights and or fighting over in Thailand and in Southeast Asia. Uh, I mean, I know I was familiar with him before I was familiar with Strikeforce, for example, and I'm sure Coker was familiar with that fact, right? Hence hence building around this guy. And it wasn't just some cheap build, though, I mean, because even hardcore fans, and granted this didn't age well, but who were we comparing the fantasy? Like, oh, we got to see him face Anderson Silva, Kung Lee, and, and you know, th- that became less appealing, of course, as time went on. But this is during a little period while that is going on. And like I said about the matchmaking, for as much as... You can criticize, oh, we're building around these stars to get him in, but the competitive matching, you got to go look at the prelims and you got to look, you know, kind of lower. Well, not necessarily. Some of those billing fights were more competitive than they led on, and Scott Smith versus Kung Lee was one of those. Of course, I'm talking about Scott Smith versus Kung Lee 1, where the upset happened. He was not supposed to win. He was brought in. He was coming off of a loss to uh, Nick Diaz, who just looked great moving up to welterweight in that fight, by the way, just schooled Scott Smith. Um, Scott Smith was pretty much brought in to lose, was, was was was, was I, I imagine a sizable underdog, I don't have the odds in front of me. And it shows why, I mean, like, Kung Lee who's coming off the movie set, is literally landing movie-like kicks, he's landing spinning sidekicks, spinning hook kicks, uh, that's knocking, like, they're just touching Scott Smith and he's getting knocked down, you're like, dude, how is this guy going to survive the round? And Scott Smith just steadily takes his beating, takes his beating round by round, and late in the fight starts to come on as Kung starts to tire and pours it on, and it's it's just an emphatic comeback, and it's a great for a guy like Scott Smith who had kind of a limited arsenal. I don't say that as, as a knock. I mean, he was as advertised an action fighter this guy looks like Joaquin Phoenix if you put him on like a steroid stack not saying anything towards Scott Smith if anything that's a compliment right comparing him to a guy like Joaquin you know what I'm trying to say here the point is he throws a faint right left hook clips Kung Lee beautifully and it's the beginning of the end and it's it's one of the uh one of the for sure
1: Rocky moments Strike Force produced yeah no doubt I mean Scott Smith had a couple of those in his career right I mean this guy was always in great fights probably Probably an under your appreciated name overall, man. You know, in, in, the, in the annals of time, you know, maybe a little bit forgotten, but had some amazing fights. You knew if he was in the cage, it was going to be fun, man. And, yeah. Uh, and you know what, man? You're, you're dead right on this fight. And, and I like the fact that you included it because um, tipping my hand a little bit t- towards my number one, but I don't have a Kung Lee fight on my list. And I felt a little awkward about that because I thought, well, man, I, I really, again, if you're writing the, the book of, of, of the history of Strikeforce, how can you leave Kung Lee out of it? Because, um, you know, again, as you said, you know, identified by Coker. Homegrown, brought up, you know, uh, through the, the organization, fun to watch. I mean, that dude, like the style that he brought to the table, was, you know, revolutionary. It wasn't something we were seeing other people do. So, uh, you know, Kung Lee's career obviously kind of ended in controversy, and, and uh, you know, continues to be, um, you know, an opponent against the UFC, I guess, at this point, and all the controversy that surrounded his career. But, but this was a, a great fight in a moment in time, and. Yeah, even though Kung Lee's on the, on the on the short end of this, um, you you gotta have his name on uh, on lists like this. I mean, when you're pulling it down to five, it's tough. Uh, but I'm glad I'm glad you have some Kung Lee representation on here because, um, man, just tough to describe. Like the, the dude was just something different, man. He was it, it was unique, and you know it was kind of especially I think during that time when, uh, man, it felt like m- mixed martial artists were all becoming like the same, right? Like everybody like yeah. stopped being specialists, and it's like well, you know, now I'm just this generic blueprint of, well, I do a little bit of wrestling. I do a little, you know what I mean? Everybody's kind of this generic fighter. One, two, and, leg um, kick.
0: One, two, leg kick.
1: That's it, man. And, and, and you know, and I think it's, it's – it, I think we see it in waves, to be honest with you. But, I mean, you know, remaining a specialist in something stands for something because you're different. You you know, you do present unique problems. And I, I think there's – I think that's always beneficial when you've got one area – that you're just so much light years of, uh, above other people. I mean, I think that's beneficial. I mean, look, I guess you know today, if you want to make a comparison, like an Israel sanya might be a, a comparison yeah. to Kung Lee in terms, you know, not 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 quite as much of a different style as as Kung had, but you know, being a specialist like that, right. you know, Damian Myers, Jiu Jitsu being off the charts, you know, things like that. So um, I, I'm glad Kung Lee's on here, and this was a great fight. And again, Scott Smith, I mean, kind of glad to see his name on here, even though you know. Maybe not a a Hall of Famer. I mean, the dude scrapped every time he brought it.
0: Yeah, whether he was uh, winning by left hook in this fight or losing by left hook, uh, you know, uh, against against guys like Daly, um, he was a, a memorable guy. And I like the comparison as far as specialists and as far as that talk, you're right. In any era... Uh, there's a certain respect you got to pay whether you're a fan of that fight style or not of someone that's able to make it work in in the crazy jungle that is mixed martial arts because as we saw in all eras of the sport, successful guys or not, it wasn't easy. Um, It's not easy to do. Uh, So much respect there. And yeah, he was also one of the first Sanda guys. Of course, Wushu Sanda, um, there's a different sex of that martial art. It's one of the only martial arts that was kind of... um, uh, allowed in as far as traditional martial arts in Russia, so actually now we see more of that through the Russian brand of that, like these Dagestani guys, like uh, what's that guy, Magomed Mustafaev, I think he's got a couple spin kick knockouts mm-hmm. under the UFC banner, right? Um, so, it, 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 we might have like looked at it like flashy for back then with the 2007 goggles on, but now it's kind of funny to see things that we were like, no one besides Kung Lee is going to make that work, and now we've kind of slowly seen, under our own eyes, we're like, oh, it's all kind of been integrated, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a creative, striking art, but it's got some clinch work as well. So, I mean, I think that that was what was, was beneficial for him.
0: Absolutely. Number one time. I, I feel like we could have some crossover here, John. I don't know. The fact that this fight, ha- uh, my number one hasn't been mentioned. So I'm extra excited on that note to know what your number one is.
1: Well, I'll be honest with you. I was thinking the same thing all along. I'm like, surely my number one's going to show up somewhere, and it didn't. So I, I think we might have come to the same conclusion uh, but number one for me is Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly, uh, April 2011. Probably the greatest one-round fight of all time in any organization. I mean, you just take the personalities of these two, uh, the, the 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 figures that they are, um, and and you put them in the cage together. I mean, they this is name value. There's heat between them. I mean, real heat after the after the weigh-ins, even at the the the, the pre-fight face-off uh, in the cage you know, D- Daly's just up in there smiling at him, you know, being the punk that he likes to be, and, and, and you got De- uh, Diaz, you know, barking back at him like, what bitch, what bitch, you know what I mean? Just going at him, and then it starts immediately, and there's ebbs and flows, and it's it's going back and forth, and both guys are landing, and what's happened, and then, you know, Diaz gets dropped at the end of the first round, you're like, oh my god, he's not going to survive, but he you know, he's moving his head, he's finding a way, he's using his jiu-jitsu to buy him time, gets back up, there's a stand-up, and then the volume striker comes out and lands the big knockout. Uh, just, I mean, obviously Nick Diaz is a, is, a, is a, such a, a, a loved fighter, man. I mean, he has such a, a fervent fan base. And then you add in Paul Daly, who um, has been a part of some very heated rivalries during his career. I mean, he knows how to sell a fight, um, and what he brings to the table is fun, you know, and, and, and uh, just an absolute killer on the feet. Um, but, but he knows how to play the bad guy and has no problem doing it. And, man, it just all came together perfect. As I said, to me, in any organization, one of the greatest one-round fights of all time. I don't know that you can pack more action into a single round. And uh, I am imagine we're on the same page, Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly. Yes, we are. That's great. I mean, you were right.
0: Almost in any organization, I don't know if you went as far as to say combat sport. My boxing knowledge and kickboxing knowledge isn't vast like it is MMA, but I can't think of a single round. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you got, you know, Hagler and Hearns, which goes beyond one round, but obviously their first round was a legendary part of that story. But yeah, I mean, you got, you have, in other words, you have to go into other sports, deep in the history, just to find rounds that could compete. I think we would be coming across the same number one, John, if I had you on for top five rounds in MMA. I think this is kind of another undeniable number one. You can't get around. You don't have to put this as a number one, though, but I think that me and you both did, You know, for similar reasons. Now, mind you, I I have the date written next to this fight, and I think that's important for uh, the point of this era in context. It's April 9th, 2011. Now, not specifically the day. This isn't a combat flashback. I'm not going to pull on you folks. But the year, I mean, 2011, this is when, you know, the the Zufa purchase. We kind of know what's coming. WEC and other things have already been folded down. Uh, Even the Japan scene, you know pride went down of course years by this point but something called dream came along and in my opinion peaked about 09 2010 it starts kind of even that in my opinion starts falling down and the asian scene starts kind of quieting down so mma is really kind of coming under this blanket and don't get me wrong there's positives like maybe we can see the fights we wanted to see um, it's not like we're not ufc fans let's see what they do with it let's 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 you know there were pros but for hardcores like us john Let's be honest. There was part of us that we kind of knew that this was the last of a dying breed. That, you know, that the UFC was already kind of getting into the mainstream. We are in, we are already in the Brock Lesnar golden era has already hit, okay? So UFC is already kind of making that jump. 2011, you got the announcement. UFC is going to Big Fox. I mean, everything that was under our hardcore umbrella is being pushed into the spotlight. And there's only a little bit of crumbs left over. These guys, like, Paul Daly Semtex, who hardcores knew about, Nick Diaz, who of course was even a hardcore favorite back then. And this was just such a an important era. It's like before that band you've been following, before they go big and become too cool. Like there is so much of that in this particular era, and it's very, very well represented in Strike Force, particularly Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I think you know, I think that was the other thing too that made Strike Force a little bit more fun as well, as the fact that Um, you know, it wasn't about world rankings or necessary, you know what I mean? Like you could just make fights. You didn't have to, uh, you know, have a rankings. Well, what, you know, does it make sense? I've got to justify this. I mean, it didn't matter. You just put some names together and say, let's go in there and throw down. I think that's what made the card so fun. And you're right, man. This was a, a key time where, you know, the kind of the writing was on the wall um and and uh like you said things go into the mainstream which is cool but was also a little bit worried like is is our sport going to stay the same or are they going to try to change it or bastardize it as it goes out in front of this bigger audience so uh man a key time and and just a phenomenal fight and like i said i mean if that fight was any two people like if you just take you know joe smith against mike davis you know just come up with some random generic name generators from game. The, the fight would be amazing because it was that entertaining. I mean, the techniques that were on display, what was happening, is great. But when you add in the fact that it's Nick Diaz and Paul Daly, you know what I mean? It just makes it that much better. So, uh, just a, man, just a special moment, man. That was a, that was a great fight, and uh, yeah, it was funny as we were going along. I'm like, I know he's got to have this in here somewhere. And so when it wasn't number two, I thought, man, I, I bet we're both sitting on number one.
0: And and what it, it, another perfect part of that fight is? How about Big John? Just just you know. Uh, being there I mean one of the one of the we don't highlight refereeing performances But there's parts like you said he gets hit with Paul Daly's best shot that left hook I um, mean he almost goes flat for a second and we've seen it before Fighters recover, but at the same time you can't blame a ref because most refs will be triggered to go in But big John you could just see him He's got all the angles the whole time his eyes is on the action and even with us a, a second left you're like was that too early and you know, I know Daly was upset, but he wasn't exactly like protesting the stoppage. Or as our as our former colleague Ben Folks would say, he didn't he didn't pass the what the fuck test. Um, so there wasn't an, an argument, even though there was a second left. I mean, it was such a, a tight, close call, but called so perfectly in a perfect fight that everybody everybody's part played together so well uh, in that little one round sequence.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you go back and watch it, you could make the argument that it was a little bit early, right? right? Like the final shots weren't exactly landing clean now and i always preface this to anybody i always say do not make an argument about a stoppage being early if it has anything to do with how much time is left in the round yes. the referees are instructed not to worry about that so you can't say yep. well it was only two seconds the referees are told do not worry about time you are trying to if if, if, if it's 459.9 and somebody's not not you know intelligently defending themselves you got to stop it right there uh, so you go back and watch it, and you think, man, it, it's man, is that a little bit early? But yeah, you look at Daly's condition afterwards. He's not popping back to his feet. You know, it's not as if he's struggling, man. He, he's he's hurting on these days for a little bit. Um, so yeah, as you said, he doesn't pass that what the fuck test. You know, he's he's down for a little bit. So I think it was a good stoppage, and uh, man, again, just just a classic moment. And then the and then the crowd reaction, and then of course Nick's strutting around and pointing at what's going on and doing what Nick does, being the gangster that he is, and. uh yeah, man! What a, what a great what a great moment! Just a, uh, an incredible fight.
0: Yep, yep. Uh, I'm glad we came to that one on our number one. I'm surprised we didn't have crossover, but I'm looking back, and this was re- a really good uh, a really good list and trip down uh, memory lane. As I pull up a, a listener list here, John, do you mind uh, sharing with the audience stuff that was this close to making your list?
1: Yeah, you know what, man. Like I said, I, I, I like the combination of our list together because you know the fact that you had some kung lee on there. I felt bad that I didn't have that. Um, you know, probably my, my top one that I struggled to eliminate. Um, and, and I, I kind of wanted to enter it as a whole. You know, you said we can kind of do this the way we want, but the the Melindez versus Thompson trilogy, man, all three fights of that are are, are great fights, and so I, I kind of wanted them to almost be one entry. Uh, and I guess you know if I was if I was taking something off, maybe it'd be Lawler Manhoff because I mean that was just a fun. It was just fun, man. Oh, that's just a, crazy, you know, yeah. You know what I mean? So if I was trying to make it more like historical moments, but I, I tried to have a little. A little blend of everything in there. So yeah, Melendez Thompson. I was glad you gave it some love. I kind of had a feeling you would. I mean, those fights were were, were too important not, to, excuse me, too important not to. I was going to kind of weigh him in as as a trilogy altogether. Um, but that that one was really hard for me to not have on the list. It, excuse me. And then, like I said, Kung Lee as well. I was, I was glad you had him uh, representing there also.
0: Awesome. No, t- I I totally agree with you on that. And um, it uh. There are, there are some that's hard to not have on there, but I'm glad you went with a personal choice, John, because, again, that's what this podcast is about. It's your list. It's my list. It's listeners' list. It's no fun to argue about one definitive list. There's enough of that that's always going to go on in sports. That argument, that door will always be open. That argument will always be ongoing. This is just more of a fun specifics where we can give shouts to things that maybe you forgot about. And I love that man, shout shout. Uh, Benny Abs on Twitter. At Benjamin Abrigo from Fanside, it says, Not sure I, I want you all to discuss this because I may or may not have shed a tear watching it live in the arena, but Fedor Hendo was fun and sad for a Fedor stan.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, that really was uh, just a, an incredible finish, right? Man, a technique we hadn't seen used to, to end a fight very often, just the, 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 the position of the punches that ended the fight. Um, man, yeah, that, that was, I can't I can understand the tear shed, man. It, it happens.
0: Yeah, you're right. That reference is is pretty evergreen when we're trying to d- discuss that version of Ground and Pound when someone's turtled. I believe it's called the peekaboo uppercut, but it's much easier to just go, fade or hendo. Oh, yeah, yeah, those shots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, as no, far as...
1: You know what I'm talking about. You remember it.
0: um, My... The ones that I have a H next to it, I, I do this when I make the list, John, because as, as you know and as the listeners know, I do a truncated version of these video-wise for MMA Junkie, and um, I'm allowed to squeeze in two of my honorable mentions. So those two, what the, they're going to be probably is um, Daniel Cormier versus Bigfoot Silva because I wanted to get some DC mm-hmm. on there. You know, uh, again, sh- shouting out again Junkie Radio, but when they would do interviews with King Mo back in the day, that's how I got uh, – I'm not sure about you, John, but that's how I got DC on my radar – was through those Junkie Radio interviews with King Mo, who was bragging about DC, and DC at that time was splitting time with King Mo and AKA. I remember getting DC to come on after UFC 127 and give us a real interesting corner take from that John Fitch-BJ Penn fight. Uh, Him, you know, explaining, you know, um, BJ Penn can wrestle, don't underestimate him, and he's saying that Fitch didn't listen to him. And you kind of, like, learn that DC was a... a force behind the scenes so by the time he got to strike force fighting Jeff Munson I was licking my chops I'm like, I want to see what this guy can do and he really challenged on what just you know a, a guy who doesn't have the, the, the best physique he's not the biggest guy out there which is of course why I can relate to him and you know get behind a guy like that and you see him knock out Bigfoot and that was kind of his uh, his coming out moment uh, so to speak
1: that's that's great I, I felt bad about not having Cormier on there as well and I, I tell you a funny Cormier story so I was actually at his professional debut just by chance uh, it was in Oklahoma. It was a Strikeforce Challenger show. We really didn't, we didn't, we didn't travel to cover the Challenger series shows because they were just smaller. They were prospects based, that sort of thing. So we just covered those from TV. But um, I happened to be in Dallas um, visiting my family, where I, where I grew up, and uh, the show was happening in Oklahoma. And I was like, well, look, I'm here. I mean, it's not that far of a drive. I can go up there and let's we'll just get a little on-site coverage. And uh, Dan stuff said, yeah, if you want to do that, go ahead. And it was a uh, Bixby, Oklahoma, I believe. Uh, and and Cormier was on there. Same thing. I'd heard the rumblings behind the scene. I'd never seen the guy. Obviously, this was a debut. Um, didn't know much about him, but I heard all the all the you know respect for him. And he weighed in. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, Cormier is not Francis Ngannou when it comes to, to to physique. But in the early days, he was he was even a little bit softer. He was probably closer to me than he was closer to Francis Ngannou at that time. And uh, man, I, I saw him, and I remember I remember just at the weigh-ins going. This is the guy. This is the guy that everybody's saying is going to be a beast. Like, are they sure they got? This? Is there another Daniel Cormier? What's what's going on here? Um, but man, he 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 showed his character in his first fight. Man, you know, it was clear that he was still a raw product, but he, he weathered an early storm, was able to get a second round TKO, and uh, I was like, man, okay, maybe this maybe this guy does have a little something. So it was funny to see, and, and a little a little thing that the, the Junkie Radio guys can 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 vouch for on this, you know, uh, so. As, as he so he fought in Strike Force, we didn't go to his second fight because, again, it was a challenge. Then he went and fought overseas, and you know, he was kind of coming along. And we didn't have an opportunity to take more pictures of him, basically, because we weren't in person with him. So we had this one way in picture where he was admittedly looking a little more like me than he was himself, you know. So he was a little soft, <laughs> right. and and at one point, at one point, he's always had a great relationship with the junkie radio guys. But Goz actually called me up, and he's like, hey, I need a favor. I was like, what, what's going on? He's like, um, Cormier's asking if there's any way we can, like, no longer use that photo of him as a person, <laughs> you know, because he feels like he's he's changed a little bit since then. Maybe we could get an updated photo. I was like, all right, fair enough, man. We'll, we'll, we'll get a new photo of him and, and – uh, so that one is is buried in the back end of of uh, MMA junkie somewhere.
0: But that adds to the appeal, you know. I mean, we we, we just uh, shouted Benny uh, Benny Abs there for being a Fedor fan. I was a Fedor fan myself, John, uh, for the same reasons. I was a BJ Penn fan. It was kind of an every man looking guy. You know, he was balding on. These guys were balding on top. They had a little bit of bellies on them. The guys were referencing right all three of them, uh, but they were at. Points, at points of time, you know, in GOAT conversations, if not the GOAT, if we're talking about Fedor, uh, by a lot of opinions um and i don't probably because it's probably it wasn't politically correct but this was a big thing at the time especially amongst hardcores you know speaking of this everyone was like oh it's like the black fedor and like that's what that, that's why we got excited like that's why i loved him like, yes he's back and in a different form you know because you know for you know knocked out fedor and you're you've got this cormier guy coming up and like he's the new hope this is the guy
1: that's our guy <laughs> Black Vader, I had totally forgotten about that. We did call him that. We probably shouldn't have done that. No,
0: that's probably why it died out, in fact. So I feel bad bringing that up. Of course, I'm bringing it, it up out of love and within context here. Um, another honorable mention is uh, Nick Diaz versus KJ Nunes, too, I think, is a hardcore fight fans. You know, again, this is, this is an elite XC storyline, of course. So you have to be a hardcore to follow that. That was the epic scene. If you see Nick Diaz in the highlight videos, where he's cut and he's flipping off the cage, he's mad at a decision, and he's walking up the ramp. That was Nick Diaz versus KJ Nunes one. And number two was just a technical, just a uh, 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 boxing affair. It was a, it was a great boxing match. If you love, if you love boxing and MMA.
1: Masterpiece, it really was, and that was a heated rivalry, man. I mean, KJ Nunes is kind of a, a, a name that went on to be a little bit forgotten with time, um, but at that time, man, he, as you said, he was kind of a uh, you know a guy that was being pushed and had the look and had totally. the skills, and uh, man, that was a that was a phenomenal fight. That really was a good one, and uh, yeah, I, I I I thought about that as well. I didn't want to have too much Nick Diaz on there, you know, because man, you I mean, how many Nick Diaz fights because you Dude. have on there? So oh I, man, I kind of in my head that's that's really the only reason that one didn't make it because that was such a phenomenal fight but i didn't want to have too much nick diaz and i just i you have to go diaz daily is is the best of those but uh diaz noons deserves some love so that's a good shout on the honorable mentions
0: so. and, and, and you're right good, good looking cat that kj Nunes. i mean he represented my people well he was like the the keanu reeves of mixed guys coming off the island and and making waves on the mainstream so you don't blame coker for uh you know uh trying to uh, air, you know Aaron pico and get behind him at a young age at all like you could see the yeah, formula
1: What's crazy? I was just I was pulled up his record. Like I, I hadn't thought about you know I'm, I'm trying to remember the fights and li- listen to this run that Noon's got yeah. because you know he had a great record and then and then his record went downhill fast. But listen to this run. He goes he goes one and five in six fights. So you go oh man that's ooh that's not good, too good you know. It's against Nick Diaz, Jorge Masvidal, picks up a win over Billy Evangelista, then loses to Josh Thompson, Ryan Couture, and Cowboy Cerrone. Oh by the way, all of them decisions. So he was yep. he was never finished uh you know some you know and so I mean the guy was tough man the guy had some skills and it's a shame because that was a tough run for him man and and, because in my head I was like man he was never the same after that fight but then I just pull up his record I'm like well maybe he was the same but look at who the hell he was fighting man that's tough yeah
0: you're right I mean even the the last fight on that list against Cowboy Cerrone I went back to watch that a little bit ago before Cerrone's last fight and it's actually a, a a competitive fight until Cerrone takes over. This is Cerrone where he's learning how to wrestle um, and, and takes that path. But in the first round, you see KJ Noons doing things like time marching and. Using Cerrone's own tools against him, which you wouldn't see until Jorge Masvidal, and later on in the career, until guys started finally figuring, figuring him out. I do wonder if some of those people went back to watch that first round because KJ made a good account for himself. And within the context that you laid, that's pretty crazy. I forgot about that, John. Uh, before we get out of here, I'm just going to list uh, some of the honorable mentions, the rest on my list here. Uh, before we get out of here, feel free to interrupt and comment as you will. Um, we mentioned Fedor, of course. You know, even though it's not a a fight that would earn any historical importance, but man, was that that Brett Rogers fight fun to watch him come back from the busted nose and and you know that was a fight you could play casuals and go and the, the, and, and go guess who's going to win this fight and everybody's going to go Rogers 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 and you press play and you watch their emotions do yeah. this.
1: What I mean, what a story Brett Rogers was. I mean, uh, an, an uplifting story to start his career yeah. and, and, uh, and and not so great at the end of it. You know. Um, wow. Yeah. Brett Rogers name. I hadn't thought about in a while. Uh,
0: I, I wanted to give some Jake Shields love, but the only fights that really come that, that were my favorites, of course, was, uh, Dan Henderson. And then the forgotten fight against Jason Miller that ends with Jason Miller with an RNC locked in on his back as time running out. If there was just five seconds more, that's one of those fights where, yeah, I, I don't think the fighter was saying that to be uh, harsh. That's true. Could have gone a different way.
1: Shields is tough man because he's so good but his fighting style just clearly wasn't fan friendly. It wasn't really exciting. But damn, I mean, you it was hard for anybody to look good against. Him. I mean, much less beat him. He was a tough out. But even if you beat him I mean, just to to try and look good, his his style, man, uh yeah, you you can't again talk about strike force without talking about Jake Shields. Um the, the dude's grappling is 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 incredible and it just his name won't be remembered. I think is one of the the greats necessarily, just because his his style didn't necessarily lend to being you know real fan friendly.
0: Which is crazy because you'll hear from guys like GSP and and so on saying he was one of the most difficult guys even on the feet. Um, not because he was anything flashy or a knockout artist by any means, but he was just so awkward and tough. So which kind of did you led- ever
1: wonder how the how the hell him and the Diaz brothers hooked up? That just never seemed like a friendship that made sense to me. No. Like they are so opposite in personalities, man. I just I just really wondered what those what those sessions went like, just hanging out. Like I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and seen some of them just chilling in the in the gym cuz they seem like such different human beings. It
0: it does, but Jake Shields has this weird kind of I, I, I'm trying to put this in a kind way cuz I'm not trying to come out. I like Jake Shields, but he kind of has this offness. Like- he has this offness about him where like if you watch him whether he's at, walking to the cage or like just at a show, like, he looks like he's perpetually lost all the time. Like, he doesn't know where he's at. <laughs> like, that's
1: the best way to describe <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, John? That's funny. And, I do. I know exactly how you're talking And I love Big Man. I, I saw him yeah. at the quintet, uh, you know, when he had the unfortunate uh, – you know, incident with Cub Swanson where yeah. it wasn't anything that he did wrong. But of course that's, that's, you know, where Cubs knee damage came from. But yeah, man, I, I love Jake, but that's a funny observation, man. He's, a, he's an interesting character, but I think it's just cause he's such a
0: go with the flow guy. Um, we kind of touched on this, uh, a big historical fight, but didn't make the list. Cause it's pretty one-sided one-way traffic, which was Gina Carano versus Chris Cyborg, but deserves to be mentioned, of course. Um,
1: no- man, piece of history, man. I, you, you have to mention that. I mean, that was an iconic moment, but you're right. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it was pretty much one way traffic, and, and uh, so it's tough to make a list, but definitely deserves to be mentioned. Uh,
0: two good fights that were just good fights um, that, you know, could have made the list for that, but it's, they're both Nate Marquardt's uh, dealings with the Strike Force title when he made his 170 drop, taking it from or beating Tyron Woodley for a vacant Strike Force welterweight title, and then losing it in the defense to, you know, which is a trivia question that gets more popular given his tra- 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 trajectory, but the last welterweight champion, which is Tarek Safadi.
1: Yeah, you know what's funny is when you when you first mentioned the topic to me, and we've talked about doing the show, and and and, and you know, obviously there's a lot to digest, but it, I, just immediately in my head I was like, okay, top five strike force fights. The the one that stood out like instantly, that popped in my head was was actually uh, the Woodley win. I mean, that was just the, that that finishing sequence is iconic. You know what I mean? That that was an incredible moment. So I ended up not making my list because then when I really started digging through, I was like, oh wait a minute, I've, now I remember, I forgot. Oh yeah, got it. You know. But it was funny that when when we when we talked about the topic, that was the fight that popped into my head right away.
0: Yep, that's a great it's a great fight. And then just some five round fights, uh, last three five round fights that were just worth a mention. Um, I think this was his coming out party, at least getting on my radar. Passes ten Kennedy bookings, which was Luke Rockhold challenging and beating Ronaldo Souza in a five round fight. Uh, of course, you also have. Uh, Daniel Cormier with Josh Barnett. Don't need to say much there. That produced highlights of its own, and I never went back to watch this fight, John. But I did for this in this prep, and this was a five-round fight. And you could tell there for, for for obvious reasons they're building up Josh Thompson, but they didn't expect this guy Clay Guida to come in and give him such a tough fight. And that was fun that's to watch in retrospect.
1: Fight. Yeah, man, that's a classic fight, man. That's a little hidden gem there. You know, people forget uh, what Guida accomplished at Force, man. Yep. I mean, it's, it's it's pretty incredible. So. Uh, yeah, man, that's a good moment. And, yeah, Rockhold, got to mention Rockhold, too. Man, I know I know Rockhold is another guy that people like to hate on, uh, but I'm telling you right now, Strikeforce era, uh, Luke Rockhold especially, man, when he was making his way up, man, this dude was such a phenomenal athlete, man. And, uh, you know, so, so obviously some things haven't gone his way in recent years. And he's had some health troubles and all that, but I'm telling you, early on, and, and, again, a homegrown talent that came through the Challenger Series, you know, big, strong, good-looking dude, very marketable, obviously, but, the t- man, the talent of the athleticism that you saw early on, and that Jacques Array fight, man, that's that's when we saw that, hey, man, this surfer kid's the real deal. You know what I mean? He's actually, uh, you know, he's a well-rounded talent. But, I mean, dude, watching him develop was fun, man. That guy had clear skills uh, and clear athletic talent.
0: And closing up this conversation, John, yeah, Strikeforce checked all those boxes. And following the Rockhold and many other storyline from that era of Strikeforce, the merger in the UFC, I think, kind of proved how well those, just like with the WEC fighters we saw, we saw that anybody discounting them were, were, were probably going to be on the wrong side of history. They did very well for themselves in the UFC.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I you know I think they had to battle a little bit of stigma when they came in, but it, it didn't take very long. That went away. I mean, the same thing, like I said, with WC. is like, ah, they really belong here. Yeah, they, they really do belong here. And it's important, man. You know, just the, the – the, and we talk about history and we talk about lessons and we talk about, you know, kind of understanding the sport. I think what Strikeforce and WC showed and the lessons that fans can really learn from is, is listen, to me – and I, I, I believe this forever, and, and, and until things change, I'll, I'll always believe this. If you want to say that you are the number one fighter on the planet, you have to fight in the UFC because you have to be facing top contenders over and over. You have to be facing number two in the world, number three in the world, number four. You have to. But to say that you know a, a fighter that's on another roster isn't a world-class talent or isn't capable of accomplishing great things, I mean, just because somebody's fighting in an organization outside of the UFC, you can't write them off and say that, hey – They wouldn't perform here. There's no way they could keep up with the caliber of the UFC fighters. There's no way they could perform. Now it's tough. I mean, it's tough to say you're the number one guy. You know, I I guess Fedor would probably be the last one because that was at a time when. You know the, the Pride's heavyweight divisions was actually better than the UFC's heavyweight division. I don't know that any any organization could accomplish that now just because the UFC is such a behemoth. But it's just an important lesson. Look how great all these fighters did when they came over. And understand that when you're watching fighters on, on other rosters, they may not be the number one fighter on the planet. But that doesn't mean they don't have number one level talent and, and that they're not worth watching. So Justin Gaethje. Uh, I think that's valuable lessons. Justin Gaethje, damn right. There you go. Perfect example. Guy was having these wars and World Series of Fighting. I know hardcore is like, Yourself and me were were telling people like, dude, this kid's fighting. Like I don't care if you never watch another fight, you gotta watch this guy. Bryce Mitchell, a guy that was fighting World Series of Fighting. I was like, dude, this guy's got something, man. And and so yeah, you identify you, that you can be world class talent in other organizations. You shouldn't be so quick to. To write people off and, and organizations like strike force and, and wc being folded into the usc just just proves it. well
0: said john we got to get out of here but so let's get let's get on, on that note because i couldn't say it better myself this was such a fun uh historical uh, you know his, 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 historical time travel if you will thank you for joining me again apologies it's been long overdue but this this was uh this was everything i wanted from this and i'm really glad how our list how our list shaked out um any any last thoughts and please Plug your awesome show, the MMA Roadshow, which you can support on Patreon. Anything you want to plug uh, before we get out of here, John, as well.
1: Yeah, I'll cut you some slack for not having me on earlier. Listen, man, we're both busy people. We got busy lives. But, uh, man, this uh, this quarantine and this furlough, that kind of changed the availability. We were trying to get this thing scheduled. I said, Dan, I got nothing going on, bro. I got absolutely – you just name the time and I'll be there. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm glad to do this. Hope we can do it again in the future. And Yeah, if, if people haven't heard, please. Check out the MMA Roadshow on on uh, you know Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, we also have a Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash The MMA Roadshow. That's where we do all the uh, like bonus editions, the and a half, if you will, uh, post fight content and uh, uh, put a story there. I got I got a chance to speak to John Jones. He called me out of the blue and I'm on furlough this week, uh, so I couldn't do anything with it for Junkie. So I just said, well, let's just put it up there. So there's a great story. I, really, I think it was a good interview with 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 John Jones. Um, that he reached out to me last night. So uh, yeah, check all that stuff out, and, and always appreciate the sport, man. I, I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about. it. I know I ramble sometimes, but uh, dude, I love I love the sport. Any chance to talk MMA, dude? I'm I'm down. Man,
0: that that that's huge. Uh, you, you you taught me a lot, and uh, whether I work with you or not, uh, you know you know I I'd go to I'd go to bat for the work you do, John. Some of the best post fight content, again by the way, for the MMA Roadshow, as far as like exclusive, because you guys are actually on site. Uh, covering these things you, you you can't beat that and again just support you know people complain it's really easy to complain in our culture right um, but we see the analytics on what's being clicked on or what's being supported and let's just say folks it's still a free world you can vote with your dollars you can vote with your clicks on what you want to support so support the good stuff up the, out there. Support John. Support his show. If you want to support this show and uh, help keep this thing afloat, free and all that fun, you can go to mixedmartialanalyst.com. We got click-through banners for those of you Amazon shoppers. I know everyone's using that now. On it as well as a uh, PayPal donation. And shouts to at ahbai1986. One year off from being a great year, but still a good year nonetheless. Really appreciate uh, that donation. Longtime follower and supporter of many. Uh, good podcast and programming so again thank you john for uh, for coming on this was great thank you all for listening whether you're on youtube hello whether you're listening in the ears on apple Podcasts. thanks for your subscriptions five star ratings and reviews there stay healthy and until next time protect the next